We're going to be learning the Hamedrish Vahamasa and Parshas Bishalach. And this Parsha actually has three, not two, drushas, as well as a halacha section. The first drusha begins with two very strange midrashim. The Medrash compares the first paro, so that's the one in the times of Avraham, who took Sarah, to a horse. Then it compares Avimelech, also from the times of Avraham, to a donkey. And then it compares the paro from Moshe's times to a seal, a fool. So the first paro is like a horse. Avimelech is like a donkey, and the second paro is like a seal, an idiot. So we have to understand what is this medrash trying to say. Now, there's a second medrash with regards to the man. So the Jews were given food and water in the desert. So the medrash compares the chukim and the mishpatim. Chukim are the laws of the Torah that have no reason. They're rituals. And mishpatim are the laws of the Torah that make sense, like don't steal. So the Medrash compares those two categories to food and drink. So we have to understand what is the connection between food and drink and chukim and mishpatim. So the Medrash Vamasa explains that when Hashem punishes someone for doing something wrong, there's two ways that the punishment can work. Either it can be a deterrent. So Hashem is trying to send them a message not to continue doing what they're doing. And if they take the message, then they're going to choose to stop but they could also choose to ignore the message. So they might decide to continue doing what they're doing even though they've gotten punished. But then there's another type of punishment which forces them to stop. So because of the punishment, this person no longer has a choice. They're unable to continue doing what they were doing. And it depends on the context. Someone who's willing to just take a message doesn't need to get a worse punishment that stops them from physically being able to continue to sin because even with a less intense message, they'll choose to stop sinning as opposed to someone who's more stubborn. So they need to get punished more. Says the Hamedrash Vahamasa, that's what the Pasuk in Mishle that compares a horse and a donkey is trying to say. Shut lasus meseg lechamor. A horse only needs a whip. You can just tell the horse in which direction to go and he'll listen. Whereas a donkey needs a bridle because he doesn't listen until he's forced to do something. So Mishle is comparing these two types of punishments. A horse, you just need to indicate what's the right direction. You don't have to force him. Whereas a donkey has to be forced. The shevet legev kisilim. When it comes to fools, you need to hit them with a rod. So a fool can sometimes be like a horse. They only need to be shown the right direction. And sometimes like a donkey that they need to be forced. It depends on how they react to the punishment. So based on this, the Medrash Vamasa explains the Medrash that compares Paro to a horse and Avimelech to a donkey. He already explained earlier in Parshas Vayera, and he repeated this in Parshas Shmos, that there was a fundamental difference between Paro and Avimelech. In Egypt, they didn't think that they were following the actual laws. They understood that they were doing whatever they wanted. So Paro didn't try to defend himself to Avraham and explain why he was in the right. Paro immediately understood that he had tried to break the rules and do something wrong, and Hashem had punished him. So Paro had a certain good quality like a horse that all he needed was to be told that what he was doing was wrong. When Hashem punished him, he immediately realized that what he had done was wrong and he changed course. As opposed to Avimelech, 
Melech, who had a different wicked style. He wouldn't say that he was doing the wrong thing. He would try to get around the rules within the system. So he would find all sorts of loopholes and pretend like the system of laws was actually supporting what he was doing, which was wrong. So Avimelech gets all defensive when Hashem punishes him. He tries to act as if he was in the right. He was just following the rules. And yes, he was following the laws of his country, but the laws themselves were immoral. They allowed the king to do all sorts of immoral things. So because Avimelech is convinced that he's in the right, that's why he has a whole conversation. He starts arguing with Avraham. Why didn't you tell us that you're married? I'm innocent. Because Avimelech can't see that he's doing the wrong thing. So that's why he needs to get punished like a donkey in a way that he cannot continue to sin. Because he won't just listen to a suggestion. He needs to be punished more. So that's why when it comes to Paro, the Torah just says very briefly that Hashem caused illness in Paro's house. Because that's all he needed. As opposed to Avimelech, where the Torah describes a more intense punishment that no one could give birth. And according to the Medrash, it also means that they couldn't go to the bathroom. So nothing could come out of them. So that's a more intense punishment because like a donkey, he needed to be forced to do the right thing. Now, what about the second paro? Is he more similar to the first paro that he only needed to be shown the right way? Or is he more similar to Avimelech that he needed to be forced to do the right thing? Says the Amedrash that this paro is very interesting. He has both elements. When the Jews were still in Egypt, so Moshe and Aaron are negotiating with Paro, and he seems to be able to take feedback. His magicians tell him, Kimhi, that this is the finger of God, and Paro is able to say, I and my nation are sinners. So in Egypt, Paro is more like the horse, that he just needs to be shown the right direction, and then he can see that what he's doing is wrong. But then once the Jews leave and now they're in the desert, they're on the edge of the ocean. So now Paro seems to get it in his head that really the Jews should be his slaves, that he deserves to have them and that his gods are going to defend him if he goes to war. So now he becomes more like a donkey. He's stubborn. He won't take feedback no matter what he's going to continue doing what he does. So this second paro has both elements. At times he's like the first paro and at other times he's like Avimelech. So that's exactly what the Medrash is saying. If we use this Pusuk and Mishle to understand these figures, so the first paro is like a horse. He just needs a whip. Avimelech is like a donkey that he needs a bridle. And the second paro is like the fool that at times he's like a horse and at times he's like a donkey, depending on how the second paro is thinking, that's how badly he gets punished. So this is all for the bad. Now, if we go to the good when people follow the word of Hashem, so again, we have a similar type of division. There are some rules of Hashem, the chukim, that don't make sense. And the only reason a person follows them is because Hashem commanded them. There is no other reason. Then there's the mishpatim, which are also commandments of Hashem, but they make sense. So this reflects the food and the water that the Jews got in the desert. The water came from a miraculous well that Hashem created to give them water. But the water itself was not miraculous. The well that it came from was miraculous, but once the well was created, so then it's natural for water to come from the well. 
as opposed to the man which fell from heaven. So the entire thing, its whole existence was a miracle. Generally, food does not fall from the sky. So the man was entirely a miracle. So the water is like the mishpatim. They come from Hashem, like the well came from Hashem. But once Hashem commands them, so they make sense. Like the water is then natural. Whereas the chukim are more like the man, because they are entirely the product of Hashem. Even after they're commanded, the reason a person keeps them is because Hashem commanded them. So that's why the Medrash compares the chukim and mishpatim to food and drink, the man and the water in the desert, because it lines up with how Hashem provided the sustenance in the desert with the two different categories of mitzvahs that he gives. And then the Medrash Hamasai concludes, with a few paragraphs about how the man illustrated that God sustains all of us. He's the one that ultimately provides for us, so we don't need to worry about it as much. We can trust in Hashem that he will continue to provide. So that was the great lesson of the man. And of course, it's always relevant and it continues to be relevant. So that's the first drasha. The second drasha is about Moshe bringing Yosef bones with him to be buried in Israel. So the Medrash says that we see from here how wise and pious Moshe is that while the Jews were collecting wealth, he was dealing with reburying Yosef and doing a mitzvah. So we have to understand because Moshe did so many wise and pious things. So why does the Medrash focus on this? Now, later when the Jews complain that they don't have food, so Moshe responds that Hashem is going to provide food. And then the Torah says, Vayar kivod Hashem ba'anan, that Hashem's glory appeared in the cloud. So the Medrash comments that whenever the Jews start to go up against Moshe and Aaron and they're threatening to hurt them, so suddenly Hashem's presence appears. And according to the Medrash, Hashem is saying, better that I should get the stones thrown at me instead of Moshe and Aaron. So we have to understand what this means as well. So the Medrash Vamasa explains that the Gemara in Baba Basra, in Hamad Aleph, says that after Moshe died, the elders of the generation used to say that Moshe was like the sun and Yehoshua is like the moon. So they're trying to say that Moshe was a much greater light than Yehoshua and they as the elders remember how things were much better under Moshe and now under Yehoshua it's gone down a lot. As opposed to the younger people who didn't know Moshe so they don't realize the vast difference. Says the Hamedrash Vahamasa, even though this sounds nice, like now they appreciate Moshe, but they only really appreciated Moshe after he died. Now they're comparing Yehoshua to Moshe and they're putting Yehoshua down. So they're really just critics. They're able to criticize and find fault with whoever the leader is at that moment. Now, when Moshe was alive, there was a similar dynamic. When Moshe has a great accomplishment, like at Kriyas Yamsuf, so the Torah says, Vayaminu Bashem Moshe Avdo. Suddenly the people are all praiseworthy about Hashem and Moshe is his messenger. So they're able to give full credit to Hashem for doing this great miracle and they see Moshe as just his messenger. As opposed to when they get upset, there's no food. So now they forget that Moshe is just a messenger of Hashem and they start criticizing him himself. 
they don't turn on Hashem. They don't start asking Hashem, where's the food? But they start asking Moshe, where's the food? As if he's the one that's in charge. So this is what makes Moshe upset that when things are good, they know to give credit to Hashem. And when things are bad, they suddenly blame Moshe as if he's the one in charge. So that's what Moshe starts responding to them, that Hashem is going to feed you. Why are you complaining to me? You know that I'm the messenger of Hashem. So Hashem is going to provide food. And why are you complaining about me and Aaron as if we're the ones in charge? So that's the conversation that Moshe has with them. Now, why is it that people blame the leader when things go wrong instead of blaming Hashem? So the Amedrish Ramasa explains it's because of the way Hashem runs the world. He does not show himself when there's a punishment, when there's a message being given, but he chooses to give it through nature. So the people can sometimes miss that this is a message from Hashem who's trying to tell them something and instead it just looks like things went wrong. So that's why they blame the leadership instead of understanding that it's coming from Hashem. So that's what the Medrash is trying to say, that in order to protect Moshe from taking the blame, Hashem's presence would appear. In other words, Hashem would take the credit for bringing this punishment so that the people would turn to him instead of Moshe and they would be reminded that this punishment does not come from Moshe, it comes from Hashem. Now, usually Hashem does not do that. He doesn't reveal himself when there's a challenge, but he made a specific exception for Moshe because of how great a leader Moshe was that when there was a difficulty, he would appear so that the people would know to blame Hashem as opposed to Moshe. So that's what the Medrash means that whenever the people turn on Moshe, the presence of Hashem appears, again, reminding them who's in charge, even in the difficult times and not to turn on Moshe. And the Medrash Vamasa adds in that this is the experience of all leaders, that when things are going well, the people thank Hashem for bringing such great blessing. And when things go bad, they turn on the leader and blame them. And most leaders don't merit, like Moshe, that Hashem's presence appears and takes the blame away from them. So now, coming back to the elders in the time of Yehoshua, they criticize Yehoshua for not being up to par with Moshe, which is probably true because Yehoshua was not on the level of Moshe. But the problem here is that if they had compared themselves to the previous generation, then they would have seen that they were on an even lower level compared to their predecessors from Moshe to Yehoshua. So instead of criticizing Yehoshua, they should have looked internally at how low they had descended compared to the generation before them. That was their mistake. So Hashem decided to teach them this lesson. And the way he did this is through this whole story of Moshe taking Yosef's bones. So that Medrash Vamasa explains that generally when Moshe would tell the Jews to do something, he of course would do it as well. Any mitzvahs that Hashem gave the Jews applied equally to Moshe. Now, Hashem had specifically asked Moshe to tell the Jews to take the wealth of the Egyptians with them from Egypt. So why was Moshe not also doing that mitzvah along with them? Why did he choose to sit that mitzvah out? So the Amedrish Vamasa explains because the Gemara makes the comment that the Jews took the wealth of the Egyptians as a sort of payment for their slavery because the Jews had worked all these years for free. So they deserved to take a lot of the wealth of the Egyptians with them 
as payment. Now, even though the tribe of Levi didn't work, but they were still included in the general Jewish people and they could take money. But Moshe was a real exception because not only had he not been enslaved in Egypt, he had never worked, but he had actually grown up in the palace. So he had almost benefited. He had been given resources in Egypt as opposed to working. So Moshe was a real exception that if he had taken wealth from the Egyptians, then they could have had an argument. Why did Moshe steal our money? He doesn't deserve to take our money because he never worked and we supported him in style. So Moshe, as a great prophet, as a great wise man, he could see that this issue would come up in the future. So he decided to skip taking Egyptian money with him. So that's why when the Gemara describes Hashem telling Moshe to tell the Jews to take wealth, it says, Hashem asks Moshe to ask the Jews to take the wealth, but it doesn't include Moshe. The language seems to say that the rest of the Jews should take money, but again, not Moshe because he was an exception. He really did not deserve to take the Egyptians' money with him. So that's why Moshe was sitting out this mitzvah. But now Moshe added in another element. Instead of just sitting there doing nothing while the rest of the Jews were doing the commandment of Hashem to take the wealth of the Egyptians, Moshe decided to do another mitzvah at that time. So now he would be included in the dispensation of Haosek b'mitzvah patrimina mitzvah. Someone who's doing one mitzvah doesn't need to do another mitzvah. So Moshe decided to specifically do the mitzvah of getting Yosef's bones at that moment so that would justify why he was skipping the other mitzvah that everyone else was doing. So this illustrates Moshe's piety that even though he had an excuse for not doing the first mitzvah, he looked for a second mitzvah in order to justify why he wasn't doing that mitzvah. So this story of Moshe taking Yosef's bones instead of getting wealth and money from the Egyptians illustrates his wisdom, that he could see that there would be a problem if he took money, and his piety that he looked for another mitzvah to justify not doing the first mitzvah. So that's why the Medrash focuses specifically on that story that when the Jews were collecting wealth, Moshe took Yosef's bones. Now, the elders at the time of Yehoshua had a similar choice because they had just come into Israel and there were two mitzvahs to be done. One was that Yehoshua had died, so they needed to bury him. And the other was to go settle and get their land. So this was a similar choice to Moshe, whether to deal with the funeral or whether to amass wealth. And the elders are criticized because they chose to collect their farms and settle in them as opposed to burying Yehoshua. So this was now a huge contrast with Moshe when Moshe was given the choice between doing a mitzvah that everyone wants to do to get money versus a mitzvah that no one wanted to do to deal with burial. Moshe chose that one because he was so pious. But these elders, when they were given the same choice between dealing with a funeral or getting wealthy, so they chose the mitzvah that everyone would choose to do, which is to get wealthy. Now, even though it was a mitzvah to settle Eretz Yisrael, 
Yisrael, but if they were more pious like Moshe, they would have chosen to attend Yehoshua's funeral. So this was a sign to them that here they are criticizing Yehoshua for not being as great as Moshe. They are on an even lower level compared to Moshe. And we see from the decision that they made. So that was the sign to them that this criticism of Yehoshua was misguided and they should look internally. And according to the Gemara, they were punished that they did not live out the year. They all died 10 months later, so they didn't even get to enjoy the fields that they had settled and planted because by the time the produce came out, they had already passed away. So that was the punishment for these elders for not attending Yoshua's funeral and instead going to occupy their land. And it also illustrated how much lower they were than Moshe had been. So we learn from all this that when someone has a mitzvah that's going to benefit them and another mitzvah which is going to do good for someone else, the more righteous thing is to prioritize the mitzvah that's going to benefit someone else over themselves. So that's the second drasha. Now the third drasha also has to do with this story of Moshe taking the bones of Yosef. So the Medrash also points out that the Torah gives credit for this mitzvah to the Jewish people, not to Moshe. So the Medrash derives from here that if someone begins a mitzvah and someone else completes it, that person gets the credit. So even though Moshe began this mitzvah, he didn't go into Israel. So the rest of the Jews buried Yosef, so they get credit for it. So the Hamedrash Vamasa asks that even if this is true ordinarily, that if someone begins a mitzvah but doesn't finish it, the person who finishes it gets credit. But it's not fair in Moshe's case because he would have completed the mitzvah. He was just not allowed to go into Israel. So he was not able physically to complete the mitzvah. So why should he lose the credit when he didn't have the opportunity to finish the mitzvah? So the Hamedrash Vamasa explains something very interesting, that when Yaakov tells them not to bury him in Egypt, he explicitly says, take me to Israel and bury me there. Whereas Yosef does not explicitly say that he wants to be buried in Israel. All he says is take my bones out of Egypt. So he never specifies that he wanted to be buried in Israel. It sounds like even if they take him out of Egypt and bury him in the desert where the rest of that generation, including Moshe and Aaron were buried, none of those people were taken into Israel to be buried. So Yosef would have been fine with that, with being buried in the desert. So that means that Moshe could have completed the mitzvah. Yosef did not need to be taken into Israel. He just needed to be taken out of Egypt. Once Moshe did that, he could have buried Yosef in the desert and finished the mitzvah. So he chose not to do so. So that's why he lost credit for this mitzvah. But now, says the Medrash Ramasa, why in fact did Moshe not bury him in the desert? So the answer is because even though technically he could have buried Yosef in the desert, but it was certainly nicer to bring him to Israel. So once he had dug up his bones, Moshe decided that he might as well have him buried in Israel. Now, Moshe was not going to be able to do it himself because he was not entering Israel. So he deputized, he appointed a messenger, the elders of the generation, people who were going to go into Israel anyways, and he asked them to finish the mitzvah. 
Now, the Primagudim says that if someone begins a mitzvah, they're allowed to appoint a messenger to complete the mitzvah. But the Medrash Vamasa adds that there's a difference if the messenger is known to be reliable. So then the person who started the mitzvah will get credit for doing this mitzvah, even though the messenger completes it because they began the mitzvah and then handed it over to a reliable messenger. But if the messenger is unreliable, so then the person who makes this messenger loses credit for beginning the mitzvah because they gave it over to someone unreliable. So now Moshe appointed the elders of the generation to complete this mitzvah. So he thought that that was fine because he considered them reliable. They would go into Israel and bury Yosef's bones. So Moshe thought that he was doing this mitzvah in the best way possible. He himself couldn't go into Israel, but he appointed a messenger to complete the mitzvah and he considered them reliable. But the problem is, as we just mentioned in the last drasha, that these elders, proved to be unreliable because in the end they did not deal properly with Yahushua's burial. So once it turned out that they were unreliable, so now Moshe lost credit for having begun the mitzvah because he gave it to an unreliable messenger to complete. So in hindsight, it turned out that it would have been better if Moshe had just buried Yosef's bones in the desert instead of giving it over to these unreliable messengers. And that's why the Medrash faults him for not completing the mitzvah. Now, the halacha section has to do with the bracha before drinking water. So the Medrash quotes that they asked Rabbi Tarfon, what bracha do you make before drinking water? And he said, bore nefashos. Now we make a shahakal before water and bore nefashos after water. But Rabbi Tarfon has a unique position that before drinking water, you make bore nefashos. Then his students continue with another question. They ask, why did Yehuda get the royalty? Why does the royal family come from the tribe of Yehuda? So Rabbi Tarfon says to them, what do you think? So they say because he tried to save Yosef from the pit. So Rabbi Tarfon responds, that's not enough because Yehuda was part of the sale. So then they say because Yehuda acknowledged that he was the father of Tamar's kids. So Rabbi Tarfon responds again, that's not enough because Yehuda had had relations with her. So then the students suggest because Yehuda was willing to remain in Egypt in order to free Binyamin. So again, Rabbi Tarfon responds, that's not enough because he had made a deal with Yaakov to do so. So finally, the students say to Rabbi Tarfon, so what's the reason? So he says, because when the Jews were at the sea, everyone was afraid to go in and Nachshon ben Aminadav from the tribe of Yehuda jumped in and then the waters split. So as a reward for what Nachshon did, Hashem gave the leadership to the tribe of Yehuda. So this is a very strange medrash. First of all, what is the connection between the bracha before water and the issue of why the tribe of Yehuda got the leadership and why when they ask him about the bracha before water, Rabbi Tarfon immediately answers them. And when they ask him why Yehuda got the royalty, he has a whole conversation and asks them what they think first. So the medrash Vamasa explains this medrash. And he says that we have to understand why, in fact, according to Rebbe Tarfon, is there no after bracha on water? 
According to the other view, there's two brachas. There's shahakol before and borei nefashos after. But according to Rabbi Tarfun, you're only making one bracha beforehand. So why is water the one exception that we only make a bracha beforehand and not afterwards? Also, in general, we try to make brachas that are relevant to the food we're about to eat. So why is water the one exception where we make a bore nefashos, which is a generic blessing thanking God for creation, as opposed to something more specific than water? So basically, why, according to Reb Tarfon, is water so different than everything else? So the Hamedrash Vahamasa explains that we see in creation that whatever is more needed, Hashem makes more easily available. So air, which is an absolute requirement for every living being, is easily available. Water, which is second in importance, is also easily available. As opposed to, let's say, a car or a plane, which are not a requirement, so those are much harder to get. So the more of a necessity something is, the more available it is. Now, which one deserves a bracha more? The things which are easier to get or the things which are harder to get? So says the Amedrash Ramasa, this depends on why we're making a bracha. Are we thanking Hashem for what he's given us or are we thanking him that we're not missing something? So if we're blessing him for not lacking in something, so then the more of a necessity it is, the more it requires a bracha. But if we're thanking him for what we were given, so then the harder it is to get, the more it requires a bracha. Says the Amerush Vamasa, it seems like the bracha beforehand is thanking Hashem that we're not lacking this object. So we need water, we need food, and we're thanking Hashem that we have it and we're not lacking it. Whereas the bracha after is thanking Hashem for having given us this object because now we're full. So now we thank Hashem for what he has given us. So there's a basic difference between the bracha beforehand and the bracha after. The bracha beforehand celebrates that we're not missing something and the bracha after celebrates what we were given. So now if we apply this insight, when we're dealing with things which are not a necessity and they're hard to get like a car, so the bracha beforehand is not so important because we're not thanking Hashem that we're not missing this thing because we don't really need it. Whereas the bracha afterwards is incredibly important to thank Hashem for what he's given us. Whereas something like water, which is a necessity, so the bracha afterwards is less important because it's so readily available, so it's not so special that we got it, but the bracha beforehand is even more important because if we were lacking it, then we would be in big trouble. So something like water, the bracha beforehand is much more important than the bracha after. So this is all the view of the rabbis who disagree with Rabbi Tarfon. According to them, the bracha before water is to thank Hashem that we're not lacking water. Whereas Rabbi Tarfon has a different view of this. He thinks that we only thank God for the things that he's given us. We're not thanking him that we're not missing something. So according to Rabbi Tarfon, even the bracha before water is to thank God for all the things that he's given us. So this is the broad debate between the rabbis and Rabbi Tarfon over the bracha before water. Are we thanking God that we're not lacking in water or are we thanking him for having created us and the world as well as water.
So that's why when the rabbis ask Rabbi Tarfon, what's the bracha before water? Rabbi Tarfon answers, bore nefashos. He's telling them, first of all, there is no bracha after water because we already included the sentiment of thanking Hashem for the water in the bracha beforehand. So there's no need for another bracha after. And that's why the bracha is generic on all of creation because we're not really focusing on the water. We're thanking God for all the things that he's created and giving us. Now, the rabbis disagree with Rabbi Tarfon. They hold that the bracha before water is in order to thank God that we're not lacking water. So that's why they start to have this whole philosophical debate with him. So now they ask Rabbi Tarfon, why did Yehuda get the kingdom, the royalty? Because according to the rabbis, you don't need something special in order to merit the royalty. So long as Yehuda didn't do anything to mess up, so he would get the royalty because that's their view, that even lacking something would be a problem. So not lacking it is itself a blessing. But according to Rabbi Tarfon, that's not enough. You need to actually merit it. We only thank God for specific things that he created. So now they ask him, why did Yehuda merit the royalty? So Rabbi Tarfon realizes that they're now having a broader debate, not just about the bracha on water, but whether a person needs to earn their merit, whether they need to do something positive or just avoid doing negative things. So that's why he engages them in conversation and he says, you explain it to me. So they say, well, because he tried to save Yosef from being killed. So Yehuda prevented something bad from happening. So he deserves the royalty. Says Rabbi Tarfon, no, because in the end he sold Yosef. So he's not going to get it. Then they say, well, because Yehuda acknowledged what he did with Tamar. So again, it's not that he did something positive, but he avoided doing something negative by killing Tamar. Says Rabbi Tarfon, again, that's not enough because he had been with her, which he shouldn't have done. So then the rabbis try a third suggestion because Yehuda was willing to save Binyamin. So this is not just avoiding a negative. This is Yehuda doing something positive to protect his brother and bring him home. Says Rabbi Tarfon, that's still not a real positive because Yehuda had agreed to be the guarantor for Binyamin. So he had to do that. Not doing that would have been a negative. So Yehuda has still not done something positive. So now the rabbis give up and they say to Rabbi Tarfon, well, then you explain it to us. Says Rabbi Tarfon, because Nachshon ben Aminadav was willing to jump into the Yamsuf and to split it. So that was a positive act of leadership. And that's why that tribe merited the royalty. So this now explains the connection between these two parts of the Medrash, the discussion about the bracha on water and the issue of why Yehuda is the leader, because both are centering on this philosophical issue of whether we celebrate even not lacking something or whether there needs to be something positive in order to get recognition. And that debate also applies to our lives. Is it enough to just avoid not doing something wrong or we should strive to accomplish something positive?